You know, I'm glad it's Mother's Day, and uh, you know, we've been having these different videos that we've been showing each week because we're in this series called Improvise. We started with a musician, and then we went to a surfer, and then we had a teacher last week. Well, this week, we actually have a mom, and she happens to be baking, which is near and dear to my heart because I like eating. And so, check this video out. I do love anything in the kitchen. I love to bake. I just have this idea that once my kitchen's messy, I might as well continue. So I usually end up with a few different baked goods. I think there's a lot of advantages in baking to being able to improvise. I can remember so many times when my heart just sinks because I think, oh, wow, I just blew this one. I'm missing a main ingredient. And then with you know, a few moments later, I've either changed up the recipe and now we're on to a different type of cookies or cake or something that doesn't need that, or I'm finding something else in the house that's going to do the best job you can. Substituting ingredients um, makes it a lot more fun because I can make things much more my own. It's just rewarding to have somebody say, wow, that tastes much better than how the recipe was. What's the difference? And I, th- I, I don't know. I think I, it makes it more personal and more enjoyable for me because it's, it is. It's more of an act of love versus just um, following a recipe. can't even count how many recipes I've done and tried and failed, but I think it's just having a love for baking and being interested in learning more about products in the kitchen that can help to make things taste better. I just love to do it. I love, it's a gift that I can, that's so simple for me to do for other people, and I'm more than happy to do it. Actually, Karen has baked something like 1,400 cookies this weekend. And so when you leave today, grab one of the warm cookies that's going to be waiting for you out there. Um, Man, I'm I'm a little bit hungry. I did have a donut this morning, though, so I shouldn't overdo it, I guess. But I'm glad it's Mother's Day. I love Mother's Day. And, um, you know, I don't think that there's any area of life where we need the ability to improvise more than in parenting. Parenting is just humbling and it's difficult. You know, when my wife and I were young parents, we sort of thought, oh, we kind of got it together. This is not too difficult. It's kind of easy, you know. Um, For about nine months, it was really easy, and then our first child was born. And we realized it's not so easy. And even, you know, in the beginning, I thought, oh, I kind of got it together. You know, I want to be a wise father. And so my son, my 16-year-old, our oldest son, his name is Mackenzie. And it's the Scottish spelling. It has two parts. And the Kinsey part, the surname part, means wise leader. And I thought, oh, that's a great name to give him. Now, some books and, and people say that it also means handsome. So I figure, what, that's, that's great, handsome, wise leader. Now, the Mac part means son of. So I'm just saying, you know where I'm going with that. It was a good name, you know. And then my daughter's name is Michaela, and that means one who was like God. Wise leader, son of a wise leader, one who was like God. But parenting is humbling, so the journey continues. And by the time we got to our third child, we just named him Caden. Caden means battle, because that's what parenting is sometimes, right? Ah, it's a difficult journey, but it's also... This beautiful picture of one of the most phenomenal things that we can experience as humans, and that is relationships. Relationships. There's, there's nothing quite like spending a great day with one of your kids. 
I mean, just hanging out and having a conversation or teaching them to ride a bicycle for the first time, going to the beach, or maybe just reading them a book or coaching one of their teams or cuddling up on a rainy night and watching a DVD. There's nothing like hanging out with one of our kids. And you know, there's really no relationship that can compare to the parent-child relationship. That bond is so strong, especially when it comes to moms. I think one of the things that Mother's Day reminds us of is that we were made for engaging relationships. Not just any kind of relationships, not just casual friendships. We were made for deep, close, engaging relationships. I think it's one of the reasons why God reveals himself to humanity through the parent-child metaphor. God calls himself our father. The scriptures reveal God as our father. But all the way through the scriptures, from beginning to end, the writers use words and metaphors that have to do with motherhood. In fact, at one point, Jesus is near Jerusalem, and he's grieved over Jerusalem and what's going on there, and he weeps over Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, how long I have wanted to gather your children together like a hen gathers its chicks under her wing. It's a beautiful picture of God's love and the relationships that we were made for. This whole idea of how God relates to the world, um, theologians talk about different aspects of God. One of the things that they talk about is God's imminence. The fact that God is imminent. That has to do with the fact that he is present, he's knowable, he's approachable. Through Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually have this personal relationship with the God of the universe. And this part of kind of knowing our moms usually came pretty easy. I mean, there's nothing like the bond between a mother and her child. And there's nothing like the love that God has for you. God is imminent. And then the theologians also talk about God's transcendence. This has to do with the fact that God is above everything. He's over everything. He's even outside of everything. He's greater than the sum of all things. When I was young, I I sort of viewed my parents for a while like they had superpowers, you know? And I could be on the other side of the house, um, quietly getting into mischief or something that I wasn't supposed to be doing. And somehow my mom, and she was over here, and she knew what I was doing, and she would just have to shout, Sean, knock it off, put that down. And I thought, how the Harry Carey does she know what I'm doing? What the, she has eyes in the back of her head. What is going on with this? And we sort of view our parents as these transcendent superheroes for a while. And then we grow up and we realize, you know, our, our moms are, they're just human. They're not perfect. But for a while, we kind of view them that way. God's transcendence and his imminence. And for most of human history, people have sort of swung to one side of that pendulum or the other. They sort of camp on the transcendent side or the imminent side. And you'll have those people that they sort of view God as, yeah, he's, he's out there, or, or maybe he exists, maybe he doesn't. But if he does, he's not really involved in human history, and he's certainly not involved in my life. He's not personal, and so what's the use of him? Or maybe they swing to the other side and they say, yeah, God's here, he's there, he's kind of like this force, he's everywhere, but he's not transcendent, and so he's not really powerful enough to do any transformational work in my life. He can't really help me personally. And as we've 
been diving into this series through the book of Acts, we're going to see the Apostle Paul come upon some people that think that way. Have you ever felt that way, by the way? Have you ever felt like God, if he exists, he's so far removed from your life that it really doesn't matter? Or maybe Jesus is your buddy. You know, you know God loves you, but man, you wish that you had some power in your life to change some things, to see some healing go on in your life. And so we'll see um, the, uh, the apostles, and, and they'll be traveling through the world at the time, and they'll be teaching people. And one of the things that we'll realize is that basically what you have are Jewish Christians speaking to people that understand their worldview. They're speaking to other Jews, or they're speaking to God-fearing Greeks who understand the Jewish point of view. But as the gospel moves forward and it starts to go out into the Roman Empire, they begin to encounter people that don't line up with their thinking. And this is what we see happening in Acts chapter 17 with the Apostle Paul. And if you read through and you're doing this 28 chapters in 28 days, you see the leaders of the early church sharing the message of Jesus over and over. And the interesting thing is, is that the message never changes. The gospel is always the same when they proclaim it. Jesus died for the sins of the world, and he rose again in power, and anybody who turns to him can be transformed and be made new forever. The message is always the same, but the way they share it begins to be flexible and they begin to adjust to their audience. Literally, they begin to improvise with the Holy Spirit so that they can see the story carried forward. If you have your Bible today, I want to invite you to open to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to see Paul talking about this great transcendent God who is actually also deeply imminent with us, and he wants to have a relationship and invite every person into engaging relationships with himself and also with one another. Because of some persecution, Paul ends up by himself for a while, and he's in the city of Athens, and we kind of pick up the story here in verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so Paul, as often as he does, he goes to the synagogue and he finds himself in familiar territory where he begins to talk to those people that are in the Jewish place of worship. But then he also finds himself in unfamiliar territory. He's out in this open air area, this area that's now called Mars Hill. It was renamed when the Romans took over after the Roman god of war. And he's debating. And Luke tells us that he starts to get into a conversation with some philosophers. 
Now, some of these philosophers were the Epicureans and some were the Stoics. The Epicureans, they, they, they sort of viewed God as the absentee landlord. You know, he's way out there, and if, he, and if he does exist at all, he has no practical relevance to us. They didn't think that religion was rational, because how can an impersonal God make a personal difference in our lives? One of the goals of all the philosophers was to live a moral life. And they tried to follow Aristotle and some of his teaching about virtue and ethics. And they figured if they did, then they could avoid pain and suffering in their life. One of the main goals of the philosophers was to avoid pain and suffering. And if you're just moral enough, if you're just good enough, if you just pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and you're intelligent enough and you're rational enough, then you'll be able to eventually avoid all pain in life. And Paul's speaking to this audience, debating with them. There were also the Stoics. The Stoics were on the other end of the spectrum. They sort of felt like God was this force. He was kind of everywhere. He's in you. He's in me. He's kind of everywhere. And, and they actually called God the Logos or the Logos. We see in John chapter 1, John takes that term from the Greeks and he reappropriates it to Jesus. The one who, in whom everything holds together. But the Stoics were the same way. They sort of wanted to be moral. And if they, if they could just live out that Aristotle virtue ethic, then they would be okay and avoid pain and suffering. And they would actually reach a state where they were just calm. They were Stoic. And so they kind of believed in that end of the spectrum. And here's Paul's audience, and he begins to talk with them and debate with him. And when he does, they call him a babbler. Now, this term wasn't just a, it wasn't just a slam on Paul. It actually had to do with um, the fact that they believed that Paul had no authority to be able to talk about this type of stuff. The literal word there is translated uh, seed picker or scrap picker. And I think the idea is that um, in Athens, this was like the hub of human intelligence. I mean, their history was Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And the Romans had taken over, but the culture was still Greek. And they fancied themselves as the pinnacle of human intelligence. And I think what they were saying is, Paul, you're not making use of the full growth of the, of the full plant of human intelligence. You know, you're kind of taking the scraps. You're like a little bird that's picking up seeds that are left over. And quite frankly, we think that you're ignorant and out of date. And then they say, you're also bringing some strange teaching to our ears. And so they take him to this place, the Areopagus. And it was actually a place, we'll find out later in the passage, that a council would meet. It wasn't just a place where you went and debated and kind of shared ideas freely. You could actually be put on trial. To bring a new deity into Athens at that time was actually illegal. It was different and strange and dangerous. And so Paul is kind of treading on dangerous ground. Socrates was put on trial at the Areopagus. Later on, he was found guilty by the state, and he was executed. And so this is the situation that we're seeing Paul get into here. And, um, you know, he is basically called ignorant, out of date, and strange. 2,000 years later, people look at Christianity. I don't know if this is your experience, but sometimes they say, those Christians, they're ignorant, out of date, and they're strange. Maybe because you're a Jesus follower, somebody has felt that or said that about you. And I have to say that sometimes Christians are their own worst enemies. There are those out there that just choose to remain ignorant. Or by their own behavior, they tend to repel people. And people will write books like, They Like Jesus But Not the Church by Dan Kimball. 
Or Dan Kinnelman will write a book called Unchristian where they interview people in the 20-somethings and they ask them, what's wrong with the church? The church has a reputation problem often because Christians walk outside the door or those that claim Jesus walk outside the doors, but their lifestyles don't match up to what Jesus did. But this isn't Paul. Paul is a Jesus follower, and he's also well-educated. He was a Pharisee. He was sort of like a lawyer in that day that really went to the books and understood what was going on. But he also grew up in a leading Roman city that had a Greek culture. And most likely, Paul would have been very familiar with the Greek mindset and the Greek worldview. And so he begins to enter into some dialogue. I wonder what the church today could learn from Paul and how he handled the situation so that we can learn how to improvise now. In other words, how can we love our neighbors and develop engaging relationships, especially with those that are interested in God? And so kind of let's, let's look at what Paul did and make some observations. Down in verse 22, the story picks up. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, this is great. Paul was a master at rhetoric, and he frames his argument right from the very beginning. I'm not going to talk about these other ten things. This is what I'm going to talk about. I see that in every way you are very religious. And I wonder if all the philosophers kind of went, What? We are. Okay, let's listen to what this guy's going to say. He says, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, the thinking behind this is is that there were so many gods in the Greek system that they didn't want to leave anyone out. Just in case there's a God out there that we don't know about, we better pay homage to him. And so let's make an altar to the unknown God, just in case we're overlooking somebody. And then Paul says, so you are ignorant, you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. He just called the top thinkers of the world ignorant. He kind of turns it around. And so you could have probably, maybe they're leaning even more forward and their eyes are getting wider, like what's this guy going to say? And Paul says, this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I think one of the ways that we can develop engaging relationships is simply to observe, to be a learner. It says here that Paul walked around and looked carefully at their objects of worship. He took the time to get the lay of the land. We read earlier that he was distressed because the city was full of idols. Later on in the passage, Paul's going to mention their buildings, their uh, fantastic architecture, and even quote from some of their poets. One of the best ways that you can start engaging people around you is simply to learn about them, to ask questions. What do they value? What's their worldview? What makes them tick? I had the opportunity when I was doing high school ministry out in Colorado to go and speak to a classroom with 40 students in a public school setting. One of my students was taking a class, and it was all about culture. And so every student in that class got to invite anybody they wanted to come and speak to the class. And they were studying about different religions and so on and so forth. And so she invited me in, and basically I had an hour with these 40 students. For the first 15 minutes, I just shared my story about when I was 20 years old and I was in college and I I turned to Jesus and he radically changed my life. And for the rest of the time, 
I started to ask them questions. And they started to ask me more questions. They asked me questions about human sexuality and religion and heaven and hell and God and all these different things. Near the end of the hour, the teacher called on this one student that was, I was sort of in this amphitheater type room, and he was way up at the top and he was disengaged. I could tell the whole time. He wasn't even looking at me. And apparently I found out later that that kid had been very vocal in the class, but he wasn't saying anything when I was there. And so she said, hey, do you have anything to say? And he stood up and he said, I don't have anything to say because I'm a Muslim, you're a Christian, we have nothing to talk about. And then I said, okay. <clears throat> and I said, well, I said, you believe in Jesus, right? And he goes, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And I go, you believe Jesus was a prophet, right? And he said, oh, yeah, one of the greatest prophets. And I said, okay. I said, I believe Jesus was a prophet too. Um, I also believe that Jesus was divine, that he was God. And I said, now, I said, one of us can be wrong, or both of us can be wrong. And I said, you know what? I'm willing to be wrong about that. And at that, when I said that, his whole body just relaxed. And I said, but both of us can't be right. I mean, A can't equal B, so we both can't be right about this. I go, is that right? And he, he, he nodded his head. And then I said, but look at what we're doing here. We're having dialogue. Can Christians and Muslims come together and talk? Can we actually be friends? And he got this huge smile on his face and goes, yeah, that works for me. All right, all right, that works for me. At the end of the class, the teacher came up to me, and she gave me this huge hug, and she said, I was really worried about you coming in. I mean, a youth pastor coming into my classroom, I didn't know what you were going to say. I was totally worried that you were going to offend all of us. And she gave me this hug, and she goes, you can come back anytime you want. A youth pastor talking to 40 students in a public school, just dialoguing and learning from one another. Because of that day, my high school students in my youth group had more credibility to love their campus. And we actually saw students come and check out God in our youth ministry. It's amazing. When we don't take time to learn and observe, we don't have the credibility to proclaim the gospel. It's offensive. But when we slow down and we engage people in conversation, then we do. Because in in engaging relationships, observation precedes proclamation. And so the encouragement is to observe. That's the first one. The second one is in the passage here. Let's uh, turn back to Acts chapter 17 and read the rest of the story starting in verse 24. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And Paul is proclaiming about God now. It's beautiful. And does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history. And the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Or in other words, to turn away from the direction that you're going and to turn towards God. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. God is a God of justice. By the man speaking about Jesus that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they, heard about <clears throat> when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And people will still sneer. They'll sneer at you when you share the gospel. They sneered at Paul. They're going to do the same with us. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris. And a number of others. So there were those that actually believed. Observation is the first thing. The second is invitation. Observation and invitation. Paul spends time telling them about the God who is too big for their amazing temples. And God is not like their idols, their greatest works of art. He's standing in the shadow of the Parthenon. I mean, it's the greatest, most sacred uh, Greek temple that there is. And if you're going to roll into a town and say that their greatest works of architecture are works of art, their most sacred things are worthless, then you better have a plan or you're just going to be offensive. And if Paul would have stopped there, it would have just been an offensive speech, but he doesn't stop there. He begins to tell them about the God that is too big for all of that. And he says that God is actually involved in where they live and when they live. And he tells them all this because God deeply desires for them to seek after him and know him. In verse 27, it says, God did this, that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. In other words, people matter to God. People matter. Paul, in his message, is showing the invitational nature of God. He's not rude. He's not controlling. He's not abusive. But he's one who creates humans with tremendous freedom. But all along, he's right there, and he's waiting. He's beckoning us to come into relationship with him. I wonder what we can learn about loving our neighbors from the invitational nature of our God. If this is the way he is with humanity, how can we be any different with those that are our neighbors? Essentially, Paul answers the Epicureans. He he answers the Stoics. To one group, he said that there is a transcendent God, but God is intentional in his transcendence. And he is powerful in it. He's actually involved in human history, and he's deeply involved in your life, even if you don't know it. He is there. And he says to the Stoics, God is present. He is there, but he's also powerful, and he can make a difference in your life. And he says all this is true because Jesus rose from the dead. And one day, he will come back and bring full justice. In other words, he will set everything right. You see, the gospel is simply this. The transcendent God over everything absolutely, passionately loves humanity. And he loves us so much that he came himself. Because in matters of the heart, in matters of love, you go yourself. You don't send somebody else. Jesus was God. He comes himself. 
And because we know this love, because we've engaged this love, the one who died for us and rose again, the one that can make us new, we can go out and share that love with others. This is love. Not that we love God first, but that he loved us and gave himself up as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. A friend of mine uh, put a video on Facebook the other day, and it's a, it's a love story. It's beautiful. It's a story of an older man taking care of his bride in the older ages of their life. And I want you to see it. It's beautiful. Watch this video. I don't count it a burden, whatever, to have to care for her. I I need to do everything. From the moment she gets up to the moment she goes to bed, I do absolutely everything. Um, Clean her teeth, uh, shower, dress, everything. um, But it's it's a privilege. I count it a great privilege to, to care for this one that I've loved all of these years and continue to love. This is the year where we'll celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. I was 17, she was 16. I saw her dolled up, dressed up, and she had an A-line dress on, and boom, it was gone. I was, uh, she was the one for me then, absolutely. <laughs> when we first started uh, dating, I used to ride my bike from where I lived to where she was, and that was about five kilometers on a Saturday afternoon, because it was the only chance we had to get together. And uh, it was hair wash day for her, and she used a special cream in her hair for a shampoo. And I can still smell it, because that smell was so particular, so nice. It was just absolutely special. Around about 2004, five, I began to notice um, that there were things going wrong. She was finally diagnosed with uh, the horrible disease of Alzheimer's. Having lived overseas, I knew that with a bike you can do lots of things. So I had a bike made, a bike chair made. We take it to the beach and ride along beside the beach. And as we do that, we see lots of people. A lot of people come talk to us because it's a unique thing. Nobody else has got a bike chair quite like that one. I am determined to care for her every need, every need. You see, God has loved us so unconditionally. And I understand that God has put his love in my heart. And because I realize how much God has loved me, that's how I too can love my lovely wife. She has done so much for me over all of these years. Now she can't, but I can, and I can return her love. And it's a love that, uh, well, to me, means I can do everything for her. She's my princess. I'm her William, and I wouldn't have it. (laughs) Any other way. Would you have it any other way? No, 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 not at all. We love each other. Yeah. It's this beautiful picture of God's love that's been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. May we be a type of community that receives God's love and expresses God's love wherever we go. Would you guys pray with me this morning? You know, I just want to give you guys some space to respond to God. I don't know what he might be doing this morning in your life, in your heart, on the journey that you're on. 
I know that it's easy to get disengaged in our relationship with Jesus and to fall into a rut, to fall into a dark place, to feel distant, to feel like God is not there. I want to encourage you that he is. And this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to him wherever you're at in that journey right now. Maybe for some of you, you're, you've been on this investigation and you've yet to sort of cross that line of faith where you just really want to establish that relationship with Jesus. And he's been there the whole time. He's been there waiting for you to turn to him, but he's not going to force you. He's not going to manipulate you and he's not going to control you. And that's what, not what Lakeside's about. All we can do is encourage you. Seek after him. Seek after him. He will change your life. And maybe you want to give your life to him this morning. You can do that. Just tell him, I surrender to you. And the journey will begin. God is in love with you. And he gives us that freedom to turn to him, to come to him. And when he does, a beautiful love story begins. Where he is our heavenly parent who loves us like no other person can. Father, thanks for this day where we celebrate motherhood and again, the beautiful picture of care and concern, of love and leadership that you put in our lives. And God, we see that in human relationships because we're created in your image. And so thank you for that. God, I just pray, I pray for those that are on this journey searching you out, that you would reveal yourself to them in such a real and tangible way. My heart's prayer is that they would turn to you. And I pray for those that are discouraged this morning and they're going through a valley. God, that you would be their comfort. Your word says that you are the God of all comfort. And so comfort them in what they're going through right now. God, I pray that you would exhort and encourage us this morning. You have plans for us. You have a vision for our lives. We're not an accident, and I pray that you would lead us as we give ourselves to you. Father, thanks for this morning, and thanks for your love for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.